Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Before we get to the episode, we care really deeply about supporting you in your meditation practice and feel that providing you with high-quality teachers is one of the best ways to do that. Customers of the 10% Happier app say they stick around specifically for the range of teachers and the deep wisdom these teachers have to impart. For anybody new to the app, we've got a special discount for you. And if you're an existing subscriber, we thank you for your support. So to go claim your discount, visit 10%.com slash August. That's 10% one word, all spelled out, dot com slash August. My friends, hello. When you first encounter Bhante Buddharakita, the wise and affable abbot of the Ugandan Buddhist Center, you might be tempted to think this guy's been meditating since shortly after exiting the womb. But his story of finding the Dharma and then trying to integrate it into his life is straight up wild. It, it starts with a childhood of devout Catholicism, then veers into India, a scuba diving stint in Thailand, and a sojourn with a venerable Buddhist teacher in West Virginia. When he finally lands back in Africa as one of the first Buddhist monastics on that continent, he is mocked as a wizard and then nearly assassinated. In this chat, we talk about how that shooting incident that nearly took his life led to a deep dive into the treatment of trauma, how he integrates African wisdom into his Buddhist teaching, and his motto, more dharma, less drama. Here we go, Bhante Buddharakita. Thank you for making time for this. I'm really excited to talk to you. You're welcome, Dan. I really want to hear your story because I've read a little bit about it and it's fascinating. Can you tell me how you first encountered Buddhism? Yes, the first time I encountered Buddhism is in 1990. I left Uganda in 1990 as an exchange student. Uh, yes, through Minister of Foreign Affairs in Uganda, I got a scholarship to study in India, and I headed the government of India through uh, Indian Exchange Culture Program is uh, going to, uh, to pay for me to study in India business. I was excited. <laughs> I didn't know anything about even Buddhism, but the only thing that maybe is connected to Buddhism is the word Gautama, because we studied in history about Indian personalities like uh, Mahatma Gandhi and uh, Gautama. For me, I didn't know that Gautama was even a Buddha, you know. So the word Gautama, I have ever heard it faintly in my history. So when I went to India, I didn't know that even there's a religion called Buddhism or philosopher or whatever. So I just went to study business in 1990. And when I arrived there, uh, because when I arrived in India, they had a strike. And then uh, we, we didn't go to school. Uh, we didn't study the school immediately. So then I, I was put in a hostel where there were some people who looked very strange to me. And they were monks. They had shaved the head. They are, they are putting on the robes, orange robes. I was very curious to, to say hello to them. So I went there. Then I said hello to Anna, and he had a beaming smile. Very happy. So we, we became friends. And then, uh, with, uh, long story short, they took me to the temple, and I saw a big Buddha statue. Then they told me about Buddhism. They're that Buddhist. And they, they told me they don't take dinner. They just do lunch and breakfast. And so then they are the one who really told me that, yes, there's a religion called Buddhism. And they took me to the temple for the first time. And the temple is called Ashok Vihara, Ashok Vihara in, in Chandigarh. And that's when I, I really got to know that there's even a temple. So that's how I got to know about Buddhism. But I didn't know that Buddhist people meditate. And they, those monks just wanted to be friends with me. I wanted to be friendly with them, and say they gave me food. They gave me many, many things, and slowly by slowly, uh, they start telling me about uh, what they believe in. I remember one time I went to uh, Brahma Kumaris, which are they're not Buddhist people, but it's a meditation. They told me uh, 
that they meditate Brahma Kumaris. And I had seen one guy who was quiet all the time in the evening. And he told me, oh, I asked him, you are very calm and peaceful. Where do you go in the evening? He told me he goes to meditate. Oh, then I had the word meditation. Then I went there and meditated with Brahma Kumaras. And then they have a red disc like this that you focus on. You look at it. And then you really uh, meditate, breathing in and breathe out. But there's a commentary. All right. So it was a commentary. Say, you're soul, you're peaceful. Uh, you are calm. Nobody can destroy you. So I, when I finished that uh, meditation, I went to the monks again. I told them that I've been meditating. They say, who told you to meditate? I told them that there's somebody who's very calm and peaceful, and he told me where you can meditate. Then I told them what I've been doing. They told me, no, 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 you should meditate what we call Vipassana meditation. And now that's the first time to get to know what's even meditation, because the monk told me the best meditation you can do is called Vipassana meditation. So then I got also to know meditation later on. So from Buddhism, and then the monks are telling me about meditation called Vipassana meditation. I know you were raised Catholic. So here you are in a completely different country, encountering this religion for the first time, a religion you didn't even know existed. What about Buddhism and meditation spoke to you? Given your history, why was it so appealing, this practice and this faith? Actually, for me, it was appealing like, for instance, meditation, when I went to meditate, it was normally in the evening, and then I was so stressed out in India. It was a hot country. I was eating hot food, and I, I was looking for church. I failed to see it. Uh, every time I went to look for a church, because I was a Roman Catholic, there was no church. And finally, when I got to see the church, the service was in Hindi, a language that I don't understand. So now when I went to church there, I, I was going to church so that God can see me. That back then, I believed like that. So now, every time I go to church, I could not hear the English service, or Uganda service, so, which is my language. I was just going to church and hear people just talking a foreign language. And later on, I said, no, these people, they have also a religion called Hinduism. I like to know what they believe in. And then slowly by slowly, when I went to meditate, the first meditation I did was not even a Buddhist one. I did a Hindu meditation that I told you. So when I sat there and meditated, I felt so much peaceful. More peaceful than when I was in the church. You know, in the church sometimes they say, okay, now it's kneel down and we are going to pray and all these things. So, but, but that's a short time in a church, according to my upbringing. But when I was in meditation, I told you in the evening, and uh, when I came out, it was so peaceful. And that's when I rushed and told the monks that when I meditate, it's so peaceful. So I think what really hooked me in meditation is the peace I got. That's what happened with meditation. So now, to really uh, get to deepen my understanding in Buddhism, it will take more time because the monks were just reluctant to teach me everything in Buddhism. But I could follow their lifestyle, very generous very kind and all this kind of thing. So, but when it came in 1994, uh, of course, before that, I had met His Holiness the Dalai Lama in public in India. And his presence touched me so deeply when I met him and shaked hands and uh, he gave me the kata, blessing me like this. So really, I felt that life of a monk's was very, very, very peaceful. So one time as a layman, I went again to Northern India and in 1994, and I meditated for 12 days. I meditated for 12 days, and along with that meditation, there was teachings that I learned for the first time, really systematically being taught by Dr. Alex Bazin, who's an American. He used to be an interpreter for the, his own the Dalai Lama. So he taught for 12 days, and then Buddhism was answering many, many questions I had in life. Things like, where are you going? Where are you coming from? What's the purpose of life? Uh, many, many things. And also, uh, in that course, which was 12 days in 1994, actually, it was for me an eye-opener, because it was doing both. It was introducing me to Buddhism, and also it helped me to deepen my meditation whereby you, before you enter the door, you would become aware of opening the door, the, your intention to open the door and open it. Now, finally, what did it actually, uh, as far as conviction Buddhism, 
is when I had a private audience with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in, again in 1994. I met him at his residence and he had just seen a journalist and we entered there in his room, me and him, with the, an interpreter. And then I talked to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, his presence alone. It really, really inspired me so much. So then I said, wow, this is a, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a Buddhist. I feel that I would like to belong to that kind of thing. So now, really to make it short, Buddhism answered my question that I was stuck with for a long time as a Roman Catholic growing up in Uganda. Whenever I asked question in Uganda, they said, no, 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 don't ask, just believe. But when I went to, uh, to the retreat in 1995, I was asking this, this question, and this teacher was answering this question. And uh, he was a, a good scholar. Now he lives in Berlin, in Germany. He's called Dr. Alex Bazin. He's a Dharma teacher. He's a graduate from Harvard University. He is a very accomplished scholar who answered my question that quenched my thirst to know. That's why I came to Buddhism. So when you were a child or a young man in Uganda and you would ask questions about you know, big questions, existential questions. Yes. You were told, you know, don't ask questions, just fall back on your faith. Yeah, hey, just believe. And then and then all of a sudden you got interested in Buddhism and you asked questions and people actually answered them. What were the fundamental questions you were asking? Mostly fundamental question is, uh, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here after here? So then there was all a very simple questions, or you go to hell, or purgatory, or heaven. But when I came to Buddhism, they told me, oh, you know, ultimate goal is Nibbana, you know. So then heaven seemed to be just a stopover, <laughs> or just signs that show you the way to ultimate goal, which is Nibbana, the ultimate happiness. For me, the idea of going to hell forever, that scared me a lot. <laughs> so, but when I had... Uh, in Buddhism, that you can go to hell and come out and continue on. I said, wow, that's great. It's only one-way ticket, you know. I have a round-trip ticket. <laughs> so basically, that helped me a lot, not to fear a lot about all things that I did that would lead me to hell, you know, forever, you know. So I said, well, there's room for improvement, you know. And of course, responsibility also about karma, you know. Yeah, you know, when I was born as a Roman Catholic, we used to go for confession. You would do something, and then you say, the Father would bless you, and say, hey, you're forgiven, all this kind of thing. So, first, it scared me when I was young to go to the Father to tell him all my shortcomings. I was so scared. And those fathers always were from overseas, you know, foreign priests, you know. It scared me a lot. Here, there was no somebody you go to, but then they were teaching me about karma. You are the architect of yourself. If you do good, you'll get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And then there's no person sitting there judging you, a big eye. That's what I used to believe, that there's a big eye writing all your misdeeds and all and good deeds. But when I heard that karma is the the teaching that can really uh, come into play in what you have to do and what you shouldn't do. And also you will get the results of your actions, uh, whether good or bad. So for me, that was very uh, relieving for me because I grew up with a lot of fear that always is a, a big person up there seeing me, whatever I'm doing, watching me wherever I am. But here I am. It's me. Uh, I'm responsible with, for my actions. So I think that also was a bit of relief. I say, yes, Buddhism is good, it's great. But also uh, when I, I looked at uh, uh, one question about different beliefs, hmm? there's one fundamental thing that had baffled me for a long time as a young person, that all people who are Christians, because they believe in Jesus Christ, they will go to God. When I went into India, I, because like any other Ugandan, most Ugandan, we don't know many other, other religions. So now I didn't know what about Hinduism, what about Confucianism, and people who believe other religions. So my question was, if all Roman Catholic who believe in Jesus or all Christian who believe in Jesus, they are the one to see God, what about India, which has a population which is very big? And also China, it has the biggest population, you know. I said, how come that those people will never go to God? 
So <laughs> you see, for me, it was baffling. How, how come that it's only the chosen few who believe only in Jesus? They are the one who go to God, and the rest of the people, they will never even see God, you know? So, but that was sorted out when I went to India and came to Buddhism. They say, okay, yes, okay, you believe in Jesus, that's fine, but also we believe in a Dharma, we believe in a truth. Right, so for me that was very relieving, you know. And also another question that, that actually made me to make a transition to Baha'i was actually the exclusion. I felt that the religion where I was born it was excluding others. It was really excluding. What I mean is that you're Christian like that. That that time that's how I believe that it's only Christian people, and then there was not much interaction with different religions, you know. But when I went to uh, India, I found out Baha'i was welcoming all religions, whether Muslim, Hindu. So in other words, I made, before I became a Buddhist, I made a transition from Roman Catholic and I went to Baha'i. Then from Baha'i, I went to Buddhism. And the reason why I went to Baha'i is that breaking the cocoon that, okay, this is a small group of people who are Roman Catholic, who are going to go to heaven, and they are not so much embracing other religions like Muslim and others. So that was the transition, my friend. Dan. <laughs> Thank you. It's interesting. I'm thinking as I'm listening to you, we come at Buddhism from very different angles because maybe even more so than you, I never really had any, I couldn't put much stock in the idea or I didn't have any faith in the idea that there was one God in the sky somewhere writing down our misdeeds. I never really had much attraction to that. And what I liked about Buddhism was that it's non-theistic. There is no God, although in certain areas of Buddhism, they'll talk about deities. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation. You, it seems, I'm, I'm hearing from you, you sort of liked the idea that karma could lead to rebirth a cycle of rebirths where you get another shot and then ultimately you end up in Nibbana or Nirvana, still a concept that I don't fully understand. But none of that appeals to me. I'm much more interested in the practice as it shows up in my life right now. And let's let somebody else worry about the metaphysics. But it seems to me that you really needed to get the metaphysics sorted out before you could invest. Definitely done, because for me, in school, I took chemistry and physics and biology. Uh, I was very interested always in investigation to find out myself before I get comfortable with something, you know. So for me, I wanted to know the head and the tail of all this, you know. Uh, yes, I was very interested in the law of karma, what is it, and rebirth, and uh, then uh, and ultimately Nibbana, because... I think for me, I'm a person who's interested in metaphysics, you know? Yes. <laughs> and because I was bombarded with the whole idea of heaven and hell and purgatory, all those things, I started questioning them. Where are they, basically? Are they up and down or something? So I really wanted to know Nibbana <laughs> and rebirth and all, and all these things. I think for me, I was uh, really very keen on that, yes. And by the way, I was in India back then, and uh, there were so many other philosophies bubbling, because uh, around the same time I was investigating Hinduism uh, with their philosophies. I was going to Sai Baba in Bangalore. I think the difference is that for me, when I left Uganda as a Roman Catholic, when I arrived in India, I was bombarded with so many philosophies, and I had time, and I, I needed uh, to do that seeding to really find out what's really all about that. Because, of course, Hinduism, you know, they also have karma, you know, but a different concept. They have reincarnation, a different concept from rebirth. And also Nirvana and Nirvana, they have what you call moksha. So all these ideas, I, I was reading them, you know. I think for me, I had time <laughs> to really digest all this with other kind of philosophies. So I was really a kid in a candy store, really. Tried to read as much as I can, Krishnamurti, and what they're talking about, consciousness and all that. I think for me, I was exposed more into the, uh, the world of philosophy and metaphysics that actually I went deeper and got interested in that. You went to India to study business and ended up on a spiritual quest. Definitely. And when I look back, I think that's the reason why I went there. Precisely what I'm doing is what makes me happy, and that's what makes me going. The other one was, in other words, a kind of a karmic connection to make sure that 
I get a scholarship and my parents didn't have to pay money for me to study and the government of India paid for me to study there and I just went there on a different targets. How, when and why did you become a monk? Whoa, that's a long story. (laughs) How and when? When is easy to tell you. When is 2001, I was in the USA. I went to San Jose, California, and I became a monk through, of course, the training. But later on, I had to change because my teacher was going away. And and then uh, I had a few things to unfinished business. Uh, I had to do more work for my immigration in USA, and uh, I didn't want to do that when it robes. So what I did is to go to a monastery and put on white. So then 2002, I became a monk again. So about 18 years. This is my 18th year as a monk. So now that's when. It's very easy. 2001, I started, and then 2002, since then, you know. But how... Well, it is a long story because I had to go to a retreat for three months in, at IMS in Barry, Massachusetts. I was completely confused what life is all about. Okay, I am a Buddhist, but what to do when you become a Buddhist? <laughs> so I didn't exactly uh, what's best way to lead one's life, actually. I was, I, I was at a crossroads. About 1999, I was at the crossroads. I left India and uh, I went to Thailand and I worked as a scuba diving instructor. My family disowned me literally when they got to know that I'm a Buddhist and I was pretty much alone in my life. So people in Uganda, friends, they didn't want to associate with me. They think Buddhism is just weird religion. So then I came back to Uganda in 1997. Uh, I left Thailand after living in overseas for seven years. My life had already totally changed. I was not a monk, but I was a person, enthusiastic in Buddhism, staunch Buddhist, shaved head, learned yoga in Himalayas with many yogis, and my life had totally completely changed. Totally was changed. When I arrived in Uganda in 1997, mind you, I, I left Uganda in 1990. Now here it's 97. I'm telling you, Uganda had changed a lot. And now I'm trying, I try to fit in the society in Uganda. I had scuba dive gears uh, because I was a scuba dive instructor in Thailand. And I had many books, Buddhist books. I arrived in Uganda like that. Very, very simple. Not a very successful businessman with a briefcase, <laughs> with money. And people were so disillusioned. My family and all the people I knew, they were disillusioned. And for me, when I lived there for one month, I was so disillusioned more than them. Because for me, I had scuba gears, but there's nowhere to dive. I had Buddhist book, there's no Buddhist teacher. So I tried to fit in a society. They tried to make me a businessman. Okay, how much money have you come with? Of all the seven years you stayed overseas, you must have made a lot of money. We should invest and have a business. I was not interested in any business. I was interested in meditation, and scuba diving. <laughs> so now there's no Buddhist at all, there's no temple and all these things, and everybody wants to convert me. Actually, all people ask me, what's your religion? I say Buddhism. What, do you have a Bible? I say no. I have d- Dharma books that I had bought from Nepal and all these countries. So they, they say, please, you should burn your books. You should burn your books and get saved and become born again. So everywhere I was going, that's what people were saying. I was so frustrated. In a country where I left in 1990 was not like that. It was very peaceful and there were not many people who were very over-enthusiastic about religion. Back then there were no, not many people who were like born again and uh, evangelical churches were not, there were not so many. But this time there were like mushrooms everywhere. So everywhere somebody was asking me, Please come and, and, and get born again or Jesus love you. And I said, Buddha love you also. I would, I would say like that. So now I would leave Uganda in 1998 and left for South America. And I traveled with a friend of mine from England called John Strether. So we traveled for one year and I have many friends in Chile. And after one year, I was so 
frustrated with traveling for one year. I said I wanted to stop and just meditate. So then I went to IMS in Barry, Massachusetts. And then there was what to call a three-month meditation retreat. That's how I became a monk. Because during those three months, I figured out life. <laughs> in the three months, I had, of course, lived a good life in Thailand. But I was at a crossroads as I was meditating for three months. I was, I was asking myself, what will happen after the three months? <laughs> I had left my job in Thailand. I was not interested in coming in Uganda. I was not a U.S. citizen. Where am I going to go? <laughs> Can you imagine? I, I'm frustrated with Uganda. I left Thailand because I think living in for two years on a, on a resort was also really, I was super saturated with the life enjoyment, in other words. And now I'm in a new, a new country where I'm not a citizen. So I, every time I was meditating, I say, what will happen after meditation, after three months? Where am I going next? So now, of course, when I left Chile, uh, South America, I had, that's where I got my visa to come to USA. They promised me a job at uh, opposite American embassy. And also I got admitted to a Catholic university in Chile. So then I'm, I'm planning to go to a new country altogether. I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> so every time it was on my mind what, where I'm going to go after that, after the three-month retreat. And later on, halfway the three-month retreat, I say, yes, I should go to Florida and do my course director and become the best in, in, in a diving interest industry, when you become a course director, you are at the top. So you can get make money, you can do all the things. I said, yes, I should go to Florida. I decided like that. Then but when I meditated, I started reviewing all my life, all my life. I said, whoa, whatever I try to do is not going to bring me happiness like this. Even when I become a course director, even when I go to Thailand, even if I, because I got admission to, uh, to the university in Chile, I said, even if I go to Chile, I won't get the peace I'm getting in meditation. When I go to Uganda, I'll never get that peace. So with that kind of meditation for three months, that's how I became a monk because it helped me to redefine and define the purpose of life. So I it was very clear what I like in my life. I like to keep on meditating. And now, when uh, I, I finished the three-month retreat, I did a new one, and then they were talking about how to become a monk in USA. By the way, I thought that you can become a monk in Asia. <laughs> can you imagine somebody from the airport going to meditation? Oh, you don't know anything about the country. So I didn't know that you can become a monk in USA. During the retreats, they were talking about Saido Pandita, different monasteries where you can meditate in Burma, in USA. And then I become, of course, uh, long story short, I was on the staff at IMS uh, as uh, they were welcoming me to be on the staff. And I worked in the front office as a retreat manager at the Insight Meditation Society. And I got a guy who has who is planning to go to Oden in, in, in San Jose. Yes, uh, in California. So he told me, you can actually become a monk. And I said, yes, that's what I like to do in my life. I want to become a monk and deepen my practice in meditation and overcome suffering because I had suffered a lot in the, in the past, uh, uh, especially uh, the, in Thailand, though I was having a lot of uh, joy living in a resort, but actually life was hollow inside me. It was hollow. Getting to eat good food, having good scuba dive, you know. So at the end of the day, you ask, what is that all about life? Mind you, I had meditated in 1994 in India. So there was something behind that was really uh, my mind always saying, no, no, meditation is the best thing to do. But of course, forces in life, they always pull you, you know. I ended up becoming a scuba diver and, uh, and all this kind of thing. So, but then I remember that time I say, no, the best way to lead actually one's life is to become a mom and overcome suffering because I was suffering. I was not satisfied with life. Whether going to scuba dive, whether going to Thailand or Uganda, I've, I have traveled in Brazil for one year. So I saw that there's nothing that is going to give me happiness that they, uh, compared to what, what the, the happiness I got uh, from meditation in, in 1999, a three-month retreat. That's really propelled me 
to go and medit um, uh, become a monk in San Jose in 2001. And um, you've been a monk ever since. Have you succeeded in overcoming suffering? I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> you see, that's a life project. <laughs> but there's a lot of suffering that I was creating for myself, a special projecting, kind of anticipating. Really, the suffering that I'm facing, of course, I have some... Uh, like the COVID, uh, the suffering I'm facing, how am I going to maintain this temple that I created for the next few year, months or years? I suffer like that. I suffer things that are common uh, when you have a, a fever here. But the suffering I'm not suffering is my, uh, what you call, that I create myself, uh, things like, okay, this is the reality, but this is what I want things to be. Right, I was suffering a lot like that, right? Especially in my early days as a child in, in India. Pre-becoming a monk, I used to suffer that kind of thing, uh, anticipating things, uh, uh, anticipating a friend to be like this. You know, relationship, you know? The, actually, most of the time, the suffering, we create ourselves, right? You have a relationship, and then this is what you, you want in your relationship. And the reality is that this. So the difference between what you anticipated and what you actually get is the stress that I'm no longer getting. I no longer have a big anticipation uh, for something to be the way uh, I like it against what I actually get. That kind of suffering I've eliminated eliminated uh, to some extent, but also the suffering that uh, come due to overreacting on situations like anger, fear, and of course, as a monk life, it cuts greed by <laughs> a big chunk of it. <laughs> you know, I got films, you're no longer getting luxury life. And so there's some kind of suffering that I've, I've definitely cut off by virtue of being a monk, but I've not eliminated all of them because there's some of it, some of the suffering that's beyond my control. Yes. But as for the rest of the suffering, uh, it's work in progress. That I, but I, st I still am on a path, I think, to eliminate it. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> I know that I'm on a path. It will be a question of time to work through my way uh, as I, I wanted to really work on my way to liberation in this lifetime. I'm, uh, that's work in progress. More of my conversation with Bhante Budarakita right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. You mentioned your overreactions to things in life. I would like to talk about your reaction to a major event in your life. Jumping forward in the chronology of your life a little bit after you ordained as a monk and studied for quite a while, you ultimately returned 
to Uganda and started the Buddhist center. And that was not an easy process, given that it was culturally very unusual, unprecedented in Uganda. And there has been a lot of pushback. And in particular, there was there was an assassination attempt. And I'm intrigued to hear about what happened there. And then, of course, how you reacted to it, which is really interesting. Yes, uh, you are very right. It was a long journey after med- uh, becoming a monk. I stayed in USA and, uh, of course, I went to again back to Asia and uh, got ready really to for the big thing to go back to Uganda. I had to go to Asia first to pay my respect to Buddha places. I had a retreat in Asia in 2003. I went to meditate for two months just to get ready emotionally and physically and spiritually for the big work and asking people because... uh, uh, especially monks, I asked them how to be a missionary in Uganda. So in other words, uh, for me, I didn't know how to go to a country like Uganda and introduce Buddhism, you know. All the time I've been in countries where there's no Buddhist monk, and then uh, here I am, I'm going to Uganda for the first time. I didn't know what I, get, I was getting into. Uh, I remember a friend of mine from uh, Staten Island told me, oh, you're going to Uganda. Be careful, they will kill you, you know. I said, no, it's my country. I'll go differently. So now I went to Uganda. Uh, 2005, I started the center here, the first and the only boot center in Uganda. So when I arrived, of course, uh, through t- Kenya, I came with the Buddha statue, and that told me exactly what would happen ahead of time, because, I mean, uh, in, in my future, because t- people are totally, utterly confused when they saw me. Uh, with these robes. They thought that I was going to a mental hospital. They thought I was coming from a mental hospital. Children were running away. And of course, I had a Buddha statue. They say, oh, you know, you're carrying African voodoo. You know, and and then they checked it in the airport. They told me, please don't sell it. Don't sell this Buddha statue. Don't sell your God here because they thought, others thought it's my God. Others thought that is a... Uh, African voodoo, I'm smuggling drugs and all these things. So I had a sample of what I was going to face just at the airport in Kenya. So I arrived in Uganda, I started settling in, looking for a place where I could stay. They refused me accommodation. They told me that I'm a witch, you know. So they really uh, started reacting, calling me names. So uh, what helped me not overreact? is the teaching of the Buddha itself. There's a teaching of the Buddha which says, when you hear something, just become aware of hearing. Don't just say, I don't like it, I like. Just stop at hearing when you you think. All the six senses, it's called mindfulness at six senses. So whenever those people are calling me those names, so I would just become aware of hearing. Oh, Shaolin Master. Kung Fu, oh, it's going to kick you. So they were saying like that. I would just become aware of hearing, hearing, hearing. So up to that extent, I would manage it very well because it was just ordinary things, you know. People calling your names, stopping you, say, hey, how are you? People have been kicking me, actually. There's one guy who kicked me, thinking that I, I'm a Kung Fu master, you know. But one time in my, in my history of a monk, it was uh, 2010 when actually uh, there was some kind of riots here in Uganda. There was a national election coming up. And then they actually started rooting. There was tear gassing of people. And all. So there was a lot of violence in the society. So then we asked a security company to actually protect us. So they used to bring a security guy to protect the temple. Sometimes he would come with a baton, and sometimes he would come empty-handed, sometimes with the radio, sometimes with a gun. So then this is the guy who was paid to protect the temple. One night, he shot at me. That's the worst thing that has ever happened to me in my life as a monk. This was a security guard hired to protect the temple. Yes. Turned around and shot at you. Definitely. That's even make it, make it worse. <laughs> I mean, if somebody was from nowhere 
<laughs> but this is a person who's paid to protect us. And now at one time, he shot at me and the blade passed very close to me. And then it, it hit the glass and shattered the glass and it hit me up to now I have a scar. So now how I reacted to that incident was with like drawing from the Buddha's teaching itself, right? First, of course, it was a very traumatic experience because the sound of that bullet, I'm telling you, is deafening. <laughs> that sound yeah, is deafening and the guy, of course, shot. And then I thought that is coming after me. I, of course, ran and hide in the ceiling. And uh, the I called the police. The police came. I did the normal thing that one has to do, you know, and uh, under stress, you know. The police came. I was taken to the police. I was taken to the hospital which, with a high pressure. The pressure was very high. And if I stayed the whole night, it would have the high pressure would have killed me, actually. So then they gave medicine to put the pressure down. And then the police start investigating. Uh, after three days, they caught the guy. And the guy uh, was actually uh, put in a jail. But my reaction, I think, is very, very important from that point. As a meditation monk, I never expected that, right? I never expected that to happen to me, you know? So what happened? Immediately, I decided to call an artist and start telling the story to the artist and then drew cartoons. And for me, I was enjoying it, really, because it was well uh, kind of uh, drawn. The whole incident was put into a pictorial book. Uh, and that was actually therapeutic, really, trying to write about it. So you made it into a cartoon? Yeah, yes, the whole story. We made a, a book. <laughs> we made a book out of it. <laughs> That's my re my reaction. The, the whole event was really started to be documented using cartoons. And for me, that was a beautiful story for me. Why cartoons? That's such an, I mean, of all the responses. To make it animated, you know. You see, I had learned that if God sent you vinegar, make honey out of it. Right? Yeah, those things I had in my mind. If God send you vinegar, make honey out of it. Right? So now I wanted this incident to, to tell the story to people in a very animated way. So that was my first rea reaction. Oh, call it a response, actually, if you like. So now we finished this part of the pictures, but I was going to the United States to, to teach. Uh, after six days, I was going to the United States uh, to teach. And after that, uh, I decided to go to Switzerland to rest for one month, to tell the story to friends and all that. But there was a lot of fear that was coming to go back to Uganda because I didn't know why this guy shot at me. So how I reacted with that is to overcome that fear and also use mindfulness of the tension, the tightness, the thoughts that were coming all the time. Yeah, so I think that's what I did really from a spiritual point of view. But the best thing I did to, for myself is forgiveness practice. Because I every day I was sending forgiveness to the guy who shot at me and knew that he was ignorant. So there's a way in Buddhism we practice forgiveness practice. You know, yeah, if you have done something knowingly or unknowingly through body, speech, or mind, uh, I forgive you. Like this, I used to do forgiveness practice. Uh, but of course, I had to take care of myself. Uh, when I was, in, I was in New York, I went to what called somatic experiencing a couple of times and, 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 and check with the therapist to check out whether I have thrashed out everything using Buddhism. And after two sessions, he told me you're good to go. Everything's okay because I wanted to explain this therapist uh, what I've done since that traumatic experience. And he was a meditator, actually. So really, I managed to put everything under my stride. So I did forgiveness practice. I practiced mindfulness of thoughts and difficult emotions, especially fear and aversion towards any security guard who had a gun. I, I, I had aversion towards that person. But... I was sending loving kindness whenever I saw a saturated guy with a similar gun that they used to shoot at me. I used to send loving kindness. May you be well, happy, and peaceful. 
maybe free from suffering that's causing. So actually, after checking with the therapist uh, for a couple of weeks, so I've, uh, he, he felt that I, I've, I've healed completely. Oh, of course, me, I knew that I healed, but I wanted to have a, a second opinion from a Western paradigm. Yeah, so that's how I responded with that uh, such an event. But forgiveness helped me a lot to let go of the emotion, commotion of feeling being hurt or wounded. Yeah, because there's a big question that was coming. Why me? Why now? Why this is happening to me? What have I done, really? <laughs> of course, the guy, because I was in the United States and uh, Switzerland, I didn't get a chance really to, to see the, the tail and the head of that because I never got to the bottom why he did it, why he shot at me. And at one time, uh, he was bailed out, bailed out. I remember I was in Egypt for a conference and I returned to Uganda and they said there's going to be a hearing. And the guy came at around nine. And then after 15 minutes, uh, he, he was nowhere to be seen. By the time the judge was called, actually I went there, but the guy was nowhere to be seen. And that's very common in Uganda. <laughs> Things happen like that. You never, you no longer, you cannot even trace such things like that. So then what I did is to leave everything to the law of karma. I said that, okay, this guy was attempting to kill me. Let karma take care of him because I had no time to follow up all that. Because I was a student now, I was studying. That time I was studying in Sri Lanka, bachelor's degree in Buddhism. And the reason I want to go to actually to study in Sri Lanka, uh, I wanted to study Buddhist counseling psychology. Uh, in order to really understand counseling myself regarding that in incidence, uh, that traumatic experience. So I wanted to learn more about what called Buddhist counseling psychology. So I went to Sri Lanka to the diploma and the bachelor's degree uh, in Buddhism. On top of that, I was studying uh, diploma in Buddhist counseling psychology in order to help myself to heal and also to prepare myself for big work uh, to, uh, to help others to heal from trauma. So that's, uh, I, I went back to study actually in India after that incident. So in other words, I used that incident to do what I like most, I love most, to go for further study in Buddhism and in uh, deepening my understanding of trauma and uh, emotions using Buddhist counseling psychology. So I did actually a lot of things with that incident. It helped me to do so many things actually. But so that's pretty quite remarkable. As I understand it, before this incident where somebody tried to kill you, you didn't know much, if anything, about trauma and how it works. And as part of your response to this, you use this as an opportunity to dive deeply into understanding trauma, to treat it in yourself, and then to treat other people in a country where there is a lot of trauma. Precisely, Daniel, you're right. Actually, honestly, to be very honest, I didn't know even the word trauma. <laughs> What's trauma? I didn't know. <laughs> And sometimes when I'm doing my studies in Sri Lanka, people ask me, what's trauma? I'm not surprised. Before that incident, I didn't know the word trauma. I knew wounds. I knew what's wounds, but trauma I didn't know. So how I knew trauma is actually directly from experience without even knowing the word itself. But that evening, it was a very traumatic event. So now when I went to teach at the Spirit Rock, I interacted with, of course, people we teach with. They talked about trauma. Yes, uh, people were talking about it, but I didn't have, ex uh, I didn't know experientially what it is actually. Yes. Uh, so now, when I went to Switzerland, I found a book called Trauma and Transformation, and I read it. So when I read it, everything I was reading, I was reading, it was really speaking to me because I was. Uh, they were talking about flashbacks. They were talking about. Uh, thoughts, nightmares, and all this kind of thing. Yes, so I didn't really know what's trauma, but this event helped me to know about trauma. And uh, uh, I, I actually, I took a train from Geneva to Paris. I read the whole book on that train journey. By the time I returned to, to Geneva, I had read the whole book. <laughs> so it's a, it's a big book like this, and now I'm using it to teach, actually. Uh, now, I, in fact, when I was teaching in New York, I was teaching healing intergenerational trauma. So from really, before that, even knowing so much about trauma, I didn't know much about trauma, now teaching it to others so that people can really understand it better. I hear you have an expression from trauma to dharma or dharma. Yes, actually, yeah, yeah, from trauma to dharma, yes. 
I think I should write a book about that. (laughs) (laughs) How exactly, I mean, this is a huge topic, but just can you just say a little bit about how does one transmute trauma into dharma? Well, it's really more of uh, like uh, knowing that uh, uh, trauma is uh, the problem, but there's an opportunity to heal. Buddha said, he said like this, there's two kinds of people you find in life. One is unwise person. When he's faced with suffering, he gets disentangled, become entangled with suffering and cannot even see the way out. The second person is a wise person when he sees suffering and sees there is a way out of it. It's just driving and you get lost and you cannot see the exit. You, begin, you start dazzling gas and wasting time because you can't see the way out of it. Or you miss the exit. <laughs> but if you're driving, I want to bring this to mundane life, you know. When you're driving and you see the exit, then you may not have arrived at your destination, but you know you have taken the right exit, or exit one to Boston or where. But if you really miss your exit, it's dark, you can't see it, <laughs> and you take wrong exits. That's why I say that from trauma to dharma is that very moment that you see, the, yes, there's a way out of it. There's mindfulness. There is a, uh, whatever modality, healing modality, and you trust in that process. Then that day you start following the dharma. You're in the direction of dharma. So now there's more drama and less drama. And I like that very much. I got it from somewhere, I think, France. <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh talked about there is more drama and less drama. But if you, you get caught up in trauma, then you have more drama and less drama. But if you see the way out of it, then you have more drama and less drama. I like that. We are together on that path to healing, yeah. Yes, we are. Yes, it's a long path, by the way, Dan, healing from traumatic event. It can be long, but it doesn't matter long or short. The key is that you're treading the path mm-hmm. to healing, just like liberation. One other aspect of your teaching I want to talk about before we close here is the combination of Buddhism and African wisdom seems to be a prominent part of your teaching. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, well, my friend Dan, this teaching uh, of African wisdom and uh, and um, bright mindfulness, again, that's a product of uh, that came later on from my uh, attempt to disseminate the teaching that adhered to me, Buddha's teaching, to healing and to happiness and all that. In the beginning, I was just teaching only Buddhism, uh, especially before trauma. I was just teaching Buddhism, mindfulness. But when I really got into this situation in my life, whereby I'm teaching people and they seem not to get it, (laughs) and also there are many uh, traumatic events in in their life in Africa, and uh, many people, I want to help them to heal from their trauma, which is intergenerational, I can see, because we had so many wars here and all these things. So now I went back to the drawing board, study more of educational psychology. And so I went back to study my bachelor's degree. I went to study my master's philosophy. And now I'm doing my PhD in Buddhist, uh, in, in good studies. So that really came as a product of my experience in teaching, you know. I hit a wall as I was teaching people. They could not get it. The teaching of Buddhism and mindfulness was not sinking in their head. I could see as I teach, sometimes they would frown, you know. So now I wanted to see how this teaching can sit very well with African psyche, with African thought. So what I did is to, during my research, I started to try to find out how I can teach with Buddhism with an African flavor. You know, <laughs> yes, with an African flavor. So I've tried to find out, is there any connection between African thoughts hmm, and healing and mindfulness and uh, Buddhism? All these things I wanted to put together and see the intersection. And once I found the intersection between Buddhism and African thoughts, that became to be the template I'm using. In fact, sometimes... 
when I start my teaching, always I start with the African thought, the way we think about something, whether wisdom or something like for wisdom. African thoughts like this, knowledge without wisdom is like water in the sand. Knowledge without wisdom is like water in the sand. You throw water in the sand, you just go through it. It doesn't stick. So now when I'm teaching on wisdom from a Buddhist perspective, I just don't say, oh, the Buddha said about wisdom is seeing things in details, all like this. So there are three kinds of wisdom, one from listening, one from meditation, one from uh, this kind of thing like this. No, I start with what African talk about wisdom. Hmm? Yeah, like they say wisdom is like fire, you get it from another person. So there are so many ways how African think about wisdom. There are many ways our African think about generosity, compassion. These different teachings is amazing. Truth, you know? Yes, uh, so in Africa we think that truth is wealth, you know? So now that aspect of African thinking, I would then connect it with what the Buddha teach and what is right mindfulness, basically. We talk about right mindfulness also in many African thoughts, you know? It may not be called right mindfulness, but we have some thing that speaks to that, basically. I would find that. So now, in order to make that relevant, I wanted to find a problem that is very rampant in Africa, and that's intergenerational trauma. So that became part of my my thesis, my dissertation, uh, doctorate uh, dissertation. And now, when I teach, I'm drawing a lot from my research. What works, basically? Is there any teaching or African thought that leads to disengaging from problems? Uh, is there any African thought talks about how to be free from suffering? Then I talk about that. Even the universality of suffering, according to African thought, we say that in other words, suffering is like sun. It doesn't only shine to one person. That means already African thought, they recognize that suffering is universal. And that's what the Buddha was talking about. So basically, I drew a lot from all indigenous wisdom, but starting with African indigenous wisdom, and I teach the intersection with right mindfulness. And not just for the sake of gathering bits and pieces of information and put them together, but also tie them together so that you can apply in healing intergenerational trauma. So that, that underpins most of my teaching in Africa here. And in many ways, uh, whenever I go to teach maybe Australia and all these things, it comes out. What's the Australian thing? <laughs> when I go to teach in Brazil, I just ask what Brazilian think about this. I ask them in my talks, and then I try to connect to what I'm going to offer them. What I call it is like when I come to Africa, I don't want to come with a bucket of sand. You know when you bring a, a bucket of sand? from Asia and dump it on Africa is just like bringing the teaching of the Buddha from Asia and dump it in Africa. But I want to bring a bucket of seeds of Dhamma. You know when we bring seeds, you bring it somewhere with a fertile soil, soils well prepared, then once you dump them in Africa, they will germinate. So by really marrying the best of the worlds, the African wisdom, the indigenous wisdom, for us is the best in Africa. And married with the best of Asia, which is uh, the tradition of uh, ancient wisdom from Buddhism, I put it together, let's apply it to heal our problem. That's my teaching, and that's how I roll that. Final question for me is, can you tell me about the African concept of Ubuntu? Wow, I know you've been to Africa, I think, for a long time. <laughs> yeah, Ubuntu, I use it as a central teaching. Uh, Ubuntu really literally means like life, basically. We say Ubuntu, life. Ubuntu is a person. So this is part of our language in Uganda, though they say it's Zulu from South Africa. So the concept of Ubuntu is like this in simple terms, uh, to really uh, keep it short, because it's a big philosophy, which talks about compassion, it talks about discipline, the way you behave uh, with other people. So it goes like this. I am because you are, and you are because I am. I am because you are, you are because I am. Yes, yes. So uh, this teaching 
shows that we are all interconnected, interrelated, we are not separate. And with that understanding, there's a lot that comes into play when there's such understanding. And actually, that's what Buddha was teaching many times as a philosophy. He was talking about, in Sanyutanika, he was talking about, this is the Buddha, not Ubuntu, actually. It's so similar to Ubuntu concept, actually. The Buddha said that when this is, that is. When this arises, that arises. When this is not, that is not. When this ceases, that ceases. That's in a Sanyuta Nikaya Buddha talking about it. How different is it from Ubuntu? So for me, then I would use that teaching and then I would transpose it. I would really introduce Ubuntu concept, which is understood in many African countries. For us here in Uganda, if you come and you become generous and you spoke very well, you speak very well, you, you are compassionate, you are kind, you are generous. As soon as people come and see those qualities, they say, ah, this man, literally the way how to translate that one, this man has the life of people, the life of people. That's what we say in Uganda. Oh, that means this person has human qualities, in other words. So I use that concept of Ubuntu actually to teach. And that's part of my research also with the concept of Ubuntu and then the, the, the African moral rules, the, our ethical conduct that is drawn from Egypt philosophy, Egyptian philosophies. Yes, when you tie all that, that's called Ubuntu whereby you have ethical conduct, you have values, human values coming with compassion, and that would come also being uh, uh, compassionate, being kind, and all this kind of thing. Yes, that's the teaching that we found out in Africa, and uh, in South Africa is very common because it's part of the constitution, I think now, Mandela, I think Desmond Tutu popularized it, but it's not only in South Africa because every day here, people will say, but this person has Ubuntu. Yes. There they say Ubuntu with you, but here we use O, Ubuntu. That's the difference in spelling. But it's a very common concept. And I can draw from that as I'm teaching Buddhism because, of course, you know, Buddhism teacher, teaches about, uh, the, <laughs> Buddhism even teaches about that everybody has been your mother, father, and all these things. So we are all interconnected, basically. Mm. Well, I see we're coming to the end of our time, but I'll just say in closing that, you know, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but my understanding of how Buddhism traveled from the original historical Buddha throughout Asia and around the world has been that great teachers such as yourself have figured out how to bring seeds instead of sand to the various cultures into which they're introducing the teaching. So I salute you for doing your work. Thank you very much. And uh, yes, in fact, the Buddha also used the same thing. But the Buddha, that's the concept he used because he was coming from Brahmins. I mean, he was teaching in a society which is Brahminism. Uh, and then they had a lot of, there was a lot of resistance uh, to his teachings. Eh? And he used the same terms they were using, the Brahmins. And then he would use Buddhist uh, incense to deliver that. So actually the Buddha laid that uh, uh, paved the way for us. In a way, the methodology he used to convince all people were against him and just use the same terms like karma, it was already used in Indian thoughts and just give it a different meaning. In other words, he was raising those words to a higher philosophical value, including mindfulness. The word sati, it means to remember in, Bud in India, sumuruti, there's even parks. It's called Remembrance Parks. What the Buddha, when Buddha came, wow, I said, this is a beautiful word. So the Buddha just used, uh, 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 gave it a higher philosophical, psychological value to the same words. That's what I, I'm using in Africa too. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to learn from you. Thank you. Likewise. 
Big thanks to Bonte Budarakita. That was a really fun interview, and I hope to stay in touch with him. Big thanks as well to all the people who work incredibly hard on this show. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton and Anya Sheshik from Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wartel is our production coordinator. We got a ton of wisdom from our colleagues, such as Ben Rubin, Jen Point, Nate Toby, and Liz Levin. And finally, as always, I would be remiss if I did not send out a big hearty thank you to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday with a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.